Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hey, everyone. Today, we're closing out Black Music Month by celebrating one of Rick Rubin's favorite albums of all time, Forever Changes by the band Love. Love was a groundbreaking L.A. group formed in 1965. While their name isn't usually mentioned alongside popular California psychedelic bands like The Birds or The Grateful Dead, Love's influence is vast. They were the first interracial rock band, predating even Sly and the Family Stone up in San Francisco. Their charismatic, fashion-forward black frontman, Arthur Lee, inspired Jimi Hendrix's look. And in the mid-60s, Love was the hottest band in Hollywood. They lived together in a castle and played sold-out shows on the Sunset Strip where diehard fans like Jim Morrison came to see them play. In 1967, the band recorded their third album, Forever Changes. It was the last album for the original core of the group with guitarist Johnny Eccles and co-writer Brian McLean. The album ushered in an entirely new sound for the band, combining Baroque-sounding instruments and horns with folky instrumentation and poetic lyrics. On today's episode, we'll hear some of Rick Rubin's conversation with Detroit rapper Danny Brown, who, like Rick, places Love's album Forever Changes at the very top of his greatest albums ever. Then we'll hear Rick in conversation with Love's lead guitarist Johnny Eccles about the intense turmoil surrounding the recording of Forever Changes. Eccles, who grew up straddling both Black L.A. and the psychedelic strip, explains how Love was responsible for getting the doors to the record deal, only to be quickly overshadowed by The Doors' mainstream success. Eccles also recalls first meeting The Beatles when they were an opening act for Little Richard. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Before we jump into Rick's conversation with Johnny Eccles, 
Let's first hear from the one and only Danny Brown. Of all the music you listen to, where do you put Forever Changes in your... Forever Changes is my favorite album I've ever heard. Number one album. Yeah, because I still, like I told you, I still hear... <laughs> I still hear new things to yes. this day and I still haven't under I don't understand yes. still what I'm listening to. I just know I'm not listening to it with my brain. Yeah. Like cause I know a lot of time I hear music and I love it. And then three months later it's like your brain tricked you to like that. You know what I'm saying? Cause yeah. feeling wise it does nothing for me. You know yes. what I'm saying? Yes, so it yes, doesn't yes. stick. But forever changes, no matter like how much a lot of the shit I don't even understand, for some reason it just stick with me emotionally. Beautiful. But I guess the 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 first thing that caught me about the album was that I didn't know he was black. Yeah. <laughs> like hearing some music like that because it was like I don't never want to like put race into music and stuff, but you know, growing up in Detroit, it almost have like a Motown feel to me in some sense to it, but he was like doing stuff other like black artists wasn't doing at the time. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Like almost sure. like stepping out of his realm in some sense. But even listening to it now, like coming on my way over here is so california too like i <laughs> like Absolutely. i get that vibe like i know that was made in the 60s but it's like it's like it a soundtrack works. to hear absolutely for almost and 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 i know music plays a big part for me when environments like me like growing up and being like a big Nas fan and like illmatic was like but my first time you know seeing queensbridge projects yeah and like this is the, and you know this is the scene that this yeah. shit was painted to you know what i'm saying absolutely and i guess you know drugs too (laughs) because there's a lot of like i said i got questions too about the album like the only song i can figure out that means something is the um and the titles too are so all over the place the one about the um you know the snot drying up on his pants and stuff and all that like i feel like that song's about war obviously you know about going into service and stuff but after that like all the songs are like open for interpretation for i think a lot of different people you know what i'm saying absolutely how how does the music of it strike you that's the one thing that i think is the big deal too about it like as good as the um songwriter arthur lee was i think everybody was like at the top of their game far as instrumentation and then another thing too they did it in four months like like, you talk about me, someone that take years and stuff making albums. Like, what the fuck? Am I bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> like, how did they do this in four months? And then with, they working on, on reels and stuff like that. And we have Pro Tools. You just pressing the button. You can just do, you know. So it's like, they they had no room for error. Especially when you're dealing with, okay, you already have a full band, you know. And then you want to add in horns and you want to add in string arrangements and stuff like that it's like it's so hard to make a make stuff like that cluttered like you know what i'm saying so it was like certain parts like he didn't have drums or but when he did it was always like kick ass though it wasn't like nothing that just sat there to just hold the tone you know what i'm saying everything was there to stick out which is so cool about you know production and shit too because a lot of times you know you can just fall back on the songwriting and as strong as those songs was that he's writing it's like yeah you could have just not really have could have been go like a, yeah it could have been a folk album that shit could have just been acoustic guitar and that's still we still would have knew those were amazing songs i mean like but to go that fucking hard <laughs> production wise it's like why and then it just to hear like the the cost of the album at that time is like fuck man like for that album to come out, it didn't sell any records. It wasn't like a fucking big deal or anything. Like you know what I'm saying? But now we're sitting here in fucking 2019 and talking about it. You know, so that 50, gives me 52 years later. Yeah, it gives me hope. Like you know what I'm saying? For like sure. good music never dies, no matter what. No. You know? How long ago was it that you you first heard it? I always judge stuff by um, what I was listening to at the time. I was listening to Jay Dilla Donuts. So when Donuts came out. 
2006. Yeah. That's a long time for an album to hold you. And same for me. I probably started listening to it in the early 2000s. And still, anytime I fly, that's what I listen to on an airplane, always. Because it has a subtleness to it, too. Because, like, you know, playing music is a different thing. You want something you can sleep to and still wake up and not freak you out a little bit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I think uh, For Every Change is a subtle album that has that. But I get so caught up in the lyrics of it. Like, the only other album I can, like, compare Forever Changes to, for me, in some sense, is, like, a mad villain. Like, to me, like, I can just take the album and just read it. Yeah. And I think I would still feel a um, personal connection. Just from the lyrics. Just from reading it. Yeah. Like, And that's why I said I can compare it to MF, because, like, I had went to, um, I had did, like, a year in county jail. And, you know, with being in jail, you don't have no music or nothing. So I would have my brother, like, print out MF Doom lyrics for me. Yeah. And that was the way. And, like, I connected with Mad Villain just... Just from reading the words. Reading the words. Wow. So, and I feel like Forever Changes definitely has that same type of appeal because I had to read those lyrics too. Make sure to keep an eye out for Danny Brown's new joint album with rapper producer JPEG Mafia when it drops later this year. Now let's hear Rick and Johnny Eccles talk through the making of Love's Forever Changes. I want to understand why this beautiful album is so unique. Okay. Sure. Should we go through song by song? Sure, we can do that whichever way is. I'll put them, I'll bring them up and we can listen to a little bit of each song and you can just tell me who did what or what was going on at the time or what what, what memories come up when you hear it. Okay. Okay, Let's start with this. All the times I've waited patiently for you And you'll do just what you choose to do what do you think about? What, what do you remember about? Okay, this was a song that Brian wrote, Call Alone Again. Arthur added the oar to it. Yes. Now, when we first started working on this song, it the introduction, and I'm doing the finger picking. The Spanish part, guitar. The, yeah, it was meant to be a banjo. So the song was a different song. It was a bluegrassy kind of song when he first wrote it. And we were young and naive and thought, well, we play guitar, we can play banjo too. So we rented banjos uh, and we came into the studio and we tried doing the introduction and playing banjos. Well, banjo's an entirely different instrument. Hard instrument to play. Yeah, and so if you don't know how to play it, you can't play it. And so we were at the verge of just nixing that song all together. And I was sitting in the corner warming up, so I'm just playing. They're not flamenco, they're just Spanish riffs, you know. And David Angel hears that. So why don't we just kind of transfer those kinds of riffs to Brian's song and do it that way? And so he went over and talked to Brian. At first, Brian was against it, but he says, well, if you want the song on the album, from what I understand, you're going to have to do something. And so Brian said, okay, let's do it that way. And so we changed the feel of the song to a Spanish song. And uh, the mariachi trumpet in the middle of the song was done by David Angel. He came up with that part because initially... I was doing just uh, Spanish runs and nets. What you hear playing behind the trumpet is what would have been there. But then I was playing certain runs, and the trumpet basically followed those runs. And so he played what I had played on my guitar as a trumpet solo. 
Amazing. Yeah, it is. It is Amazing. really fantastic the way it turned out. I listened to that and thought, boy, this is really a good song. Where it's really good. Before it was kind of a, you know, a so-so song, a throwaway song, yeah. basically, because, you know, we were basically trying to put the song together with, with a, a totally different feel. And this was, it was just perfect for the song, the Spanish feel. How did it end up being the first track on the album? That was done by the record company. They they put together and, and mastered it and, mm-hmm. and the uh, order of the songs that was totally done by Jack Holzman. Mm-hmm. It was a bold decision because based on everything we know about love at that moment, and now here's the new album and you put that on, mm-hmm you wouldn't know it was the same group. No, you wouldn't. And the fact that Brian's song is opening the album, had Arthur been involved in that, it wouldn't have been that way. Understood. And if you notice on this song, there are different versions of this, the same music, but there are different versions. And some, Arthur's voice, because he... See, Arthur wasn't even at the studio when we recorded Alone Again. Mm. And um, he comes in later and he hears it and he likes it. And so he sings harmony with Brian. All of us sing harmony. And um, later on, Arthur, he says he didn't do it, but I don't see who else would have done it. He put his voice ahead of uh, Brian. So you hear more of Arthur than you do of Brian on some of the uh, releases. They re-released the album just recently, and they remastered it, and you can hear it the way it's supposed to with Brian's voice more prominent. It still sounds almost the same, yeah. but you just yeah. hear Brian's voice. Just different voice. balance. Yeah. Okay, next song. You're just a thought that someone, somewhere, somehow feels you should be here, and it's so Basically acoustic songs, mm-hmm. again, which is... It coming from what we've heard before from Love, shocking. Yeah, it is shocking. Yeah. This song has a very interesting backstory. We were playing up in San Francisco at a place at the time was called the Warehouse, W-H-E-R, House. And um, Janis Joplin was billed with us. And she is really, really loud. And our dressing room would have been right behind the stage. And so we decide that there's... Back then, they would break up clubs and there would be a section where people that are under 18 could go that they didn't serve alcohol and, and they could be there. And on the other part of it is where the adults went and, and, uh, and they could buy alcohol. So we went to the adult part, even though at that point I was still you know, probably 19 or something, wasn't supposed to be in there. But we go over to that section just to get away from the screaming of, of Janice. I loved her. She was a good friend of mine, but she could really, really get your ears vibrating. So we're sitting in, in this place, and some guy just walks up, and he sits down at the, uh, at the table where Arthur and me and Brian are sitting, and he puts a big, huge gun on the table. And so we uh, What's going on? And he starts to telling us about he was an AWOL soldier from Vietnam. And he tells us about blood mixing with mud turning gray. And he's talking about all these things. You can call my name is where um, one of the soldiers would be hit. And the Viet Cong or whatever would booby trap that soldier. And so he would be screaming all night long. And the people couldn't his his comrades his buddies couldn't come and get him and rescue him because he had been booby trapped and so he's telling us all of these stories and all of that and 
you know, is Arthur's mind. We're listening to it fascinating. His mind is working entirely different. He's got lyrics. He's, he's got those lyrics, and he's doing poetry from what this Vietnam vet is Incredible. telling Incredible. And that turned into a house that's not a motel. Incredible. Yeah. And did the did the music come first, or did the words come first, and then you put music to the it? The words came first. This was basically poetry. And then Arthur would sing it, and he started singing. Arthur... Not only did he write the words, but he wrote the melodies to his stuff. He just didn't put, have the ability to put music to it. But Understood. He did and when he melody. would, if he would sing you a song, would it all be in one key? Like he would he sing it like as if there was music to it already? Sort of. Sometimes he would meander as far as the key is concerned, but yeah. and sometimes as once we started um, putting music to it and actually playing, it, it would change a bit. You know, the mm-hmm. the, the uh, melody, the phrasing, and the phrasing. To, to, yeah. to work with the music. Yeah. yeah. So he would do that, but um, this started out as I said as poetry. So would you the, say all the songs started as poetry before the music? Yes, basically all of them. As yes. a rule, yes. Fascinating. Yes. I, I would say less music is made that way. As yeah. well, yeah. That's why it sounds different because the the music kind of complements because we got to hear how the poetry went and hear yeah, so that. it's almost like you're scoring the poem. Mm-hmm. Basically, yes, that's what we're doing. And um, amazing, it, you know. Any thoughts about the music in that one? The direction of the music, how it how it evolved. Again, that was interesting because there's two guitar solos. Yes. When I'm playing the first one, the yes. earphones, the headphones are working great and I can hear the backing track and I'm laying down the solos. Uh, when I'm ready to do the second one, something goes wrong and there's a glitch and I can't hear the first guitar solo. So there was a plan to do the two guitar solos. Oh, yeah. They yeah. were going to play off each yeah, other. Yeah, I would play off myself. I see. And when... We were playing backing track back in the first guitar solo. I couldn't hear it. And so we we're going to nix that song too because, well, you maybe you're not going to do the second solo. But we figured out, Arthur and me talked, and Arthur was in the booth. And we thought of me going in the booth and playing it, but I needed the, the amp to be really loud in order to get the, the sound that it mm-hmm. got. Because I didn't use pedals. Everything you saw was the amp or you heard from me mm-hmm. was what was there. Mm-hmm. And so... What was the equipment, just so I That was a Vox AC30 amp. Yes. And what guitar? And I'm playing a Gibson Les Paul 1952 gold top with mm-hmm. um, P90 pickups. Mm-hmm. So... I'm trying to do it, and Arthur comes up with an idea. He says, I will give you signals from the booth. So I'm there, and I can't hear it. I can hear the backing track, but I can't hear my other guitar. And so he tells me when to go up and when to go down. And that's what basically how I did the second part of it. And it fits amazingly when I listen to it, but I'm trying to follow him. And so I'm not really concentrating on playing. Yes. I'm more concentrated on what he's doing. Yes. And that's why that... Probably made it more yeah, free. It did. It, it's probably some of the best guitar work <laughs> I've ever done. Yeah, and I did Amazing it how that works, it. no? Yeah. And amazing also how it works not by planning... Mm-hmm. but almost by working around a problem. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. That was like the universe wanted that song done. So beautiful. That way. Great. Yeah. Let's do the next one. And you don't know how much I love you. Oh, oh, oh. It's, it's fascinating. And it sounds so, un- again, <laughs> unlike anything else. Even guitar stylistically, it just feels like another. it's coming from another world. And that was another song. Our, many of Arthur's songs are about 
this particular lady, Anita Billings. He called her pretty. And the song And More and the first album, this is And More Again. So speaking about the same lady, Anita, Anita Billings. And um, Arthur, I think, his whole life, because he really loved her. And um, she was his high school sweetheart. And, and um, her mother found her diary. And she had obviously um, bared her soul in the diary. And the mother for made her not see Arthur anymore. And so basically the rest of his life, he's pining for really, for, for real, for this lady. Mm. And um, he got to see her one more time when we were at the castle. She comes there. And um, he had, that's the song, I see your picture. It's in the same old frame, speaking of her again. Wow. You know, at the, the castle. So many of our songs are about this lady. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Anything else you could think of about the song? This one, uh, Billy Strange, is the, uh, there's uh, the guys on the Reagan crew, remember, they played on two songs on um, um, Daily Planet. That's Hal Blaine playing drums and Billy playing the guitar with me and Brian. So Billy's playing with us. So that's Brian, me, and, and Billy Strange playing the guitar parts on that. And the arrangement that David Angel did is just really, really beautiful. The song sounded great without because it, he showed us the arrangement after we had played because we were initially going to leave it alone and yes. just leave it without the strings. Yes. But then when we heard what his so arrangement... Good. Yeah. It's so good. And so interesting that that little guitar moment right where we stopped, mm-hmm. I think of it as a string solo, even though it's not, right. you know, yeah. it's just this, but mm-hmm. the, the strings make their entrance and it feels like, oh, that's what's happening. But it's really just a, a backup yeah, support right. yeah. part. Yeah, that uh, he really doesn't get the credit he deserves, David Angel, but he would, was able to insinuate the violin and strings it's into brilliant. that. Yeah, yeah. Really great. Okay. Watching all the people Die. I'll feel much better on the other side. It's magnificent. <laughs> That's a, a very dark song, you yes. know, speaking of the times yes. in which we lived back then. But again, that's poetry put to music. You can just listen to the poetic. And then we went to see a... Uh, was at the art house called Marat Saad. It was about the people in the the mental institution. They're locking them up today. There was a line from that that film. Mm. And um, so Arthur was able to to put that together into this song. You know, it also makes sense now that talking about the way the songs came about, why the Doors would have been so influenced by love Mm -hmm. because she was was basically a a poet. poet. (laughs) A poet with a band. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. No, we were, you know, we still, because we couldn't blame them for their success. Of course, course. we got upset with the record company, but we were always tight with them. And um, we, you know, even after not playing anymore, Jim and I often talked, we're going to put together, um, you know, group and stuff. Of course, we never did, but we were... um, good friends and and always really we felt kind of proud of them because we knew had it not been for our just tenacity tenacity yeah. rather and 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 uh, the doing the the things the way we did with Jack there probably would have been no doors because they were on the verge of going their separate ways until they got a record contract and also I had spoken to him 
And I think one of the things that, that helped keep them together is rather than having to continually want to receive credit, I did this, or I did this, and, and people at Loggerheads, they decided that if whoever wrote the song, they would all split it the would money would always be equally. the doors. Yes. So, uh, and that worked perfectly for them because they didn't have to argue with each other over who got credit for what. You know, mm-hmm. they all got credit. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Oh, the snot has caked against my pants It has turned into crystal There's a bluebird sitting on a branch Anything about the lyrics or uh, the poetry? Again, it was poetry, and it was shocking poetry in the beginning. The yes. snot is caked against my pants. Yes. You know, you can get the image of that. Yes. That one is jarring in that the lead guitar player, lead guitar is rather out of place. It's, you got a soft, really orchestral song, and all of a sudden you've got a yes. kind of really raucous guitar yeah. in that. You know? Even the style of the vocals seems like uh, old English, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Some of the songs, and especially on Capo, had that feeling. And, yeah, you know, which yeah. really uh, helps diffuse the lyrical content mm-hmm. because of the sort of formality of the way it's being delivered. Yes. The words are easier to take. And this is, it is so clean the way it was done. You know, yes. everything like, as I mentioned earlier, we started out as rock as wanting to have distortion to a very clean. And the, even the guitar solo there, that's just the Vox AC30 without anything added. That's just the way it sounded. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I remember when you used to look so good and I did everything that I possibly could for you. We used to ride around all over town, but they're putting you down for being around with me. It's really interesting. Yeah, bummer in the summer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was the one. Um, Don Randy's playing the piano on that. And um, it. Uh, David Crosby had told us that music was going to be changing and country was going to be very influential and so we kind of did a little country-ish Bo Diddley country kind of song that's yeah. what that is basically. Yeah. And, and coming out of the Bo Diddley into the more classical like just the way the pieces go together mm-hmm. and the counterpoint of Brian's guitar because there's actually two guitars Brian doom, 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 yeah. and I'm playing so they kind of mix together as those one guitar but it's two guitars playing off of each other and almost reminds me like the kind of energy of like uh, in the context of the wrecking crew like Glenn Campbell's kind of driving mm-hmm. guitar vibe mm-hmm. yeah, country related in pop music yeah. He was great. I learned a lot from him because before Love, we were assigned Arthur and me. Arthur was the songwriter, and I played uh, sessions with uh, Bob Keen at Delphi Records. And so yes. Glenn Campbell worked there as a studio guy, and so learned a lot from him. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like related. You yeah. know, it's beautiful. Okay, we have one last song. Okay. If you want, she brings you water. If you don't, then you will little backstory here this was three separate songs that we'd started working on and never finished and kenny on his own initiative put those songs together and got them in the right keys and made the this into one song much of it is talking about anita billings you know i see your picture in the same old frame and that was we meet again was him meeting her at the castle and 
it not being the same as he expected it to be. Yeah. You know, they'd both grown up by then, and they yeah, were. That also has a little bit of the country feel in the uh-huh. guitar playing as well. Yeah, yeah, and and it was difficult in the beginning because I would uh, and uh, finger pick the first da 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 da, and I was continually missing a beat, so I had to pick do that with a pick to, in order to get it to come out right. I see. And that was probably one of my favorite songs to play on stage because it goes through all of these changes. Yeah, let's, let's skip up to the fun. changes a little bit. There will be goodbye. There will be time for you to put yourself on. It's incredible. It's incredible. Was this uh, prior to or inspired of Dave, David Axelrod's music? Because this feels very... I don't know what came first, though. I'm not sure which came first either, but I, this, as I said, these were unfinished songs put together into yeah. one, and then the arrangements, that again, I have to give credit to David Angel because yeah. he was able to seamlessly put these it's, things it's really together. It's beautiful. And so it was, it was meant to be that way. It was meant yes. to be this album because yes. had it had the other influences, I don't think it would have had the same impact that it has because... Everything, every song on this album fits. It seems like they were meant to be there. And yes. the order, then again, Jack Holzman, they did a great job of yeah. putting the songs in the proper order. So even after the frustration of it not being the double album, when you finished this, were you pleased with it? Yes, okay. yes. And we, everybody involved was feeling good about it. Yeah, everybody was feeling great, and we thought this was our magnum opus, and this is going to be it, and it's yes. going to take us to the next level. yes. And the record company, for some reason, still wasn't, you know, we had a billboard there for a while, but we weren't getting the kind of promotion that we felt it uh, we deserved or the song deserved. But then again, the song was a bit ahead because at that point in 68, you know, this isn't Martin Luther King, is assassinated Bobby Kennedy. And so much is happening at that time that, I think the song just kind of got lost because people were more, you know, interested in protests and, and the Barry Maguire's stuff, and you know, um, understood. So I, I think that had this been released just a little earlier, it yes. might have done better. Yes, and it did well in Europe, especially in the UK. It was went just shot up the charts. It's just here. It. It did okay, but not nearly as as well as it should maybe, have. Maybe those events that you're talking about that were a distraction here, maybe those weren't felt as strongly right, in the correct. UK. It yeah, would make sense. They weren't. And so, because at that point, we were having a lot of turmoil happening, you know, riots in the streets and yes. people burning shit down. And yes. so it was, um, it was a tough time. Normally, most of our music reflected the time, but it took a while. You have to listen to this album. It's not one that you just put on and dance to. You really have to sit back and listen to it, and you have to listen to the words because they have meaning, you know. The whole album, and as I said, people were ready for, you know, just loud rockers in your face stuff. And this was a very subtle, and it told a story, and it told it in a way that was not in your face the way some of the the music was at that time so yes. it was something you'd listen to and you're introspective and you say wow that's that's right or you know it, it gives you a different perspective than what was happening you know people were really uptight 
that's you know the best way I can put it is just you look at the sixties as all peace and love and, and harmony and, and you know, there were some times like that, but then there were other times that were just, you know, really, really raw. We have to pause for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Johnny Eccles and Rick Rubin. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Willie Nelson. Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? by using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, 
I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with more from Rick Rubin's conversation with Johnny Eccles. There have been other great albums that have come along that in their wake will may have started a whole new movement. And for whatever reason, this beautiful album is well-loved everywhere, everywhere in the world, yet it's the only one. Nobody continued the path. And I've been thinking about it as, as someone who um, helps support artists make music, and I don't know who could even make it. Like, I don't know who else knows how to make it. Mm-hmm. It's such an unusual thing. We have to go back to to the the beginning days of, of the recording, and then you can kind of see how it progressed and how it actually uh, came to be what it was, because it initially was meant to be an entirely different album. Uh, Arthur was a premier vocalist and wordsmith. He wrote wonderful poetry, but he wasn't a musician. He kind of played a little bit on keyboards, and that was it. But Arthur would sing the songs and and uh, we I mean we always would hear him singing every we lived in a place we called the castle so we lived together and all day long Arthur would be singing these songs right and so Brian and me put the music to these songs and once we started recording the first album everyone received their writer's credit and it was cool the second album even though the method was still the same. Brian and I put the music to Arthur's words. Now they were giving Arthur credit for this. And it was pissing everybody off because that's, you know, uh, there's a lot of money, first of all, besides the recognition and publishing and, and songwriting. Actually, that's where most of the income comes from. And so we were upset and we were, Brian and I were talking about just splitting up and going our own ways. And Arthur convinced us that he had spoken with Jack Holzman and that we would do a, a double album, Forever Changes, which it was called um, the Gethsemane Project in the beginning. What was it called? Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Right. And do you it, know why? Do you know why? Well, there was a lot of chaos going. Gethsemane is where Jesus was basically betrayed. And so we were looking at ourselves as being betrayed by our friend because when we started out, we were all together. We were friends. As I said, we lived together, wore each other's clothing, dated the same chick. So, uh, And then all of a sudden, once love was becoming successful, we noted a change. And then one person is being singled out and given all the recognition. And we were not happy with that. So Arthur had convinced us that we were going to have a double album, as I said. And Brian would have one side, I would have one side, and Arthur would have the other two sides, so basically four sides. Mm -hmm. And so we agreed to that. And we had been working on these songs for months and months. And when we got to the studio, everything changed. We were told that um, it was too expensive, but the doors had broken and they were selling, you know, quite a few records. And so, and the doors were were label mates at right, Electra. Yes, yes, yes. And so they, the Electra, said that they were doing a new project with the doors, and it was too expensive because when we started, Electra was a very, very tiny folk music label, and the reason we signed with them 
was um, I was a friend, or my parents were friends of Little Richard. And Little Richard would say, always own your music. Don't let anybody take the copyrights or own them. You should. So Jack Holzman was the only one out of all of the record companies that wanted to sign us that allowed us to own the publishing. And so that's why we signed with them, even though we were offered much, much more money to sign with other labels. And so we did so, thinking that, you know, after we went to Canders and had a talk with him, and he seemed cool. So we decided to sign with him. So now I get to the point where we uh, get to the studio and they decided that it's going to be a single album and we do the other part later uh, as a second, totally different album. Well, now everybody's pissed off, Brian especially, because... You know, Brian is a really a gifted songwriter, and he wanted his stuff heard, and he was only getting one song here, two songs there. And so he um, decided that he would lay back on Arthur's stuff. In other words, instead of doing the little things that he did that made this stuff sound really cool and like love, he would just lay back and have Arthur tell him what he wanted to play. Well, Arthur, not being a musician, didn't know what to tell him. So it was kind of chaotic when we were in the studio after getting this information from uh, Bruce Botnick. And then the day we get to the studio, there's Neil Young there. And Neil is our friend. We hang with him, smoke dope with him. He's, you know, And uh, Bruce tells us that Neil is going to produce the album. Now, we were not, you know, that was funny. So we all started laughing and, and stuff because, you know, we're not going to listen to Neil. Neil's one of us. <laughs> and so they, uh, Bruce calls back to New York and speaks to the record company. And, and then so we all of a sudden are on the outs with the record company because they had had this. Whose idea was it for Neil to produce it? That was Bruce Botnick. Bruce was Neil's friend also. And Neil was broke at the time. I mean, he was getting kicked out of his apartment or house i guess and so the money from producing the album would have really helped a lot and they had given him an advance bruce was so you know into him doing it that he'd managed to get him an advance and when he realized that it wasn't happening that we were not going to do that arthur had been slated to produce this album and arthur knew what his song sounded like he knew what ours sounded like so we thought that's cool because basically we all would do that together anyway and arthur would just be the one out front Uh, the record company decided that they wanted to have an adult in the room so they brought had bruce who normally was our engineer they had him act as producer even though he produced nothing but he was still part of he was already part of your team he had um or engineered the first album. The second album, he had nothing to do with. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. So uh, we were not that pleased, as I had had mentioned before, because the first album didn't turn out the way we wanted it to. Mm. You know, we were a hard rock at that time, a hard rock driving group, and we wanted it to sound like that. Yes. And it didn't to us. Yes. So we weren't happy with him. So the next album we went to, RCA and um, Dave Hassinger, who had worked with the Stones and many other hard rockers, uh, was the engineer. So Bruce was kind of on the periphery. We knew him, but we were not all that enamored with him. Understood. You know, so anyway, they work it out, and he's going to act basically as the adult in the room, and we start the album. Uh, Brian and me are both still pissed off. And so, uh, as I said before, Brian lays off, and he just kind of phones it in. 
and it's not happening. Everybody can see that, wow, this doesn't sound like a completed record, which it wasn't, you know, it was just, you know, stuff that um, Arthur had written and, you know, the words, as I said, and normally we would really get behind it and do the best we could with the music, and this time that wasn't happening. Yes. And um, so it sounded really not very good initially. So the record company brought in uh, the guys from the wrecking crew and they were going to lay down the basic tracks and then we would add the flourishes and our little things that, that made us sound like love. And so they came into the studio and started to play and it was soon realized that they sounded nothing like us. They were fantastic musicians, but they didn't sound like us. Of course. And that wasn't going to work. So... Uh, after a lot of back and forth, we took a break and decided to go back and, and work on these songs and do a little bit better. And um, I said, Brian, is this how, this may very well be our last album. Is this how you want to be remembered? Is this how you want to go out? And he said, no, man. And so let's let's just do it. So we started rehearsing and we put the music together for Arthur's words. And the album is what you hear. Now, we all along knew that it would be a, a, a different album. So we were going to do strings. Rock and roll at that time wasn't necessarily uh, heavily involved with strings and horns and stuff. So we decided that we were going to push the envelope a bit. And the Beatles were a huge influence on us, you know, the Sgt. Pepper and how they put all of that together. So we thought we would go in that direction. How recently was Sgt. Pepper released from the time you were making your album? Oh, gosh, a little bit before we actually got to the studio the first time to start, maybe a month or two. But we had been working on these songs, but they sounded different until we decided we were going to do strings and horns and have a a more of an eclectic feel. And so I had, I'm very much into blues, old school blues. So my things are going to be in that vein. And Brian dug folk music and Broadway shows and stuff. And his things would be in that vein. And Arthur would be Arthur, you know, the, the amalgam of all of us putting our musical abilities together to come up with a sound that was recognizable as love. Mm-hmm. And... So that's basically what we did. We went into the studio and laid down the basic tracks, but this time we were doing it with purpose and uh, and decided to do it right rather than phoning it in. How did it end up being so acoustic-based, considering the fact that, as you described, Love Previously had been a really hard-driving rock band? Mm-hmm. This album has a much softer side yes, to it. Yes, it does. Because back then, uh, if you listened to the radio, everything was eclectic. You could hear Frank Sinatra, and then you would hear The Birds, or Bob Dylan, or uh, Barry Sadler. You know, you'd hear different kinds of music. So that's what we were trying to do with the album, is reflect the times in which we lived. So the album sounds the way it did, but serendipity. It wasn't meant to sound that way. It was Understood. meant to be a very eclectic, as I said album yeah so we get to the studio and this time as i said we're doing it right and we have david angel and we didn't know him at the time but he was about in the same age group as us and the man was a genius he could just listen to little parts of stuff and just weave it and it sounds as though it was all a cohesive thing that was meant to be that way but you know, when we started it, even though when we initially were putting the music together, we didn't know 
if the record company was going to follow through because they had already burned us by not doing the, the double album. So we were leaving room for strings and horns without knowing whether or not they would actually be on the album. So that in itself was difficult to do. And it, I think it turned out, it, it's very interesting. I love the previous Love albums as well. Mm-hmm. It's it's just interesting how different this one is than the ones before it. And again, just that question of, why does this thing stand in time all by <laughs> all by itself? And it's, it's interesting. Yeah, and as I mentioned, the singularity, the universe seemed to just at that point decide that it was going to do that because all of these things if you uh, the chaos that was going on the hard feelings the darkness that was happening the fact that the album really was very close to not being done at all wow and for it to come out that way with all of these things going against us yes and to turn out that way because had it been the album that we initially envisioned yes. it would have been entirely different yes and i don't know if it would have had the impact that this one had mm-hmm. we by the time forever changes was finished and uh we were basically at each other's throats you know we did tour but the we were starting to distrust each other and, and uh, because of the way that went down, you know, because um, we felt we were being played. We felt that they had lied to us telling us we were going to do this. And was, was Arthur equally upset with the no double album? Or? No, he was that. That he was, was the fine. Thing. He was fine with it because, yeah, we're playing most his, of his stuff. Yeah. He got stuff his way. Yeah. And then. Uh, but you, you don't know. think that he politicked to get it that way. I don't know. I, I, I at, times think that he may have because he had friends sycophants hangers on that were telling him how great he was and and they didn't know the inner workings they didn't know that um arthur wouldn't know a suspension cord from you know a hole in the ground so he um had you know as i said sycophants who would would continually uh burnish his ego and tell him he's they call that lsd lead singer disease (laughs) yeah (laughs) so um arthur by this time you know is um thinking that he doesn't really need the rest of these guys so that's the attitude that that he's kind of uh projecting to us and then we find out that brian unbeknownst to any of us had worked out a separate arrangement with a lecturer in order for him to finish his parts on forever changes they were going to give him a, a solo deal to release a solo okay and but we were going to still keep love but he would have done that and he, they offered us the same kind of arrangement uh, so brian calls me and tells me about it and i said wow that's great let's go ch- chat with arthur about it and see what he thinks and Brian says, Arthur, I've got a uh, record deal with Electra. I'm going to release a single and all of that. And Arthur says, wow, Brian, that's fantastic. You're fired. So that was the end of basically um, Brian's involvement forever. With wow. Group, just like that. Wow. Yeah. Would you say as a rule, was Arthur an unreasonable person? Arthur was becoming more and more. He was becoming a kind of a caricature of the Arthur that I knew because he was uh, Arthur in, was in success. Yes, the success was affecting him, yes. and he also was an attention hawk. He loved to be the center of attention. So Arthur would, um, in the summer, he'd wear a fur coat on stage, you know, and do stuff <laughs> like anything to get attention. He would do. We'll be right back after a break with more from Johnny Eccles 
and Rick Rubin. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. 
See you there. We're back with the rest of Rick Rubin's interview with Johnny Eccles. What was life like in love pre-putting out even the first album? Okay, well, pre, we go back now, okay, from high school. Billy Preston and I were in high school together, and so was Marilyn McCoo of the Fifth Dimension, and Ron Townsend was the janitor at our high school. So Billy and I had the first group. So Billy Preston and Henry Vestine, later of Canned Heat, was yeah. a friend. Yeah. And so we had a group and we played bar mitzvahs and, and funerals, weddings, whatever, you know, to get paid. So we played those. Yes. And Arthur came to one of the um, assemblies in high school and he saw the group playing. Now, Arthur at that point was uh, into sports and I had known Arthur my entire life. My, our families go back to before we were even born, wow. before our mothers were even born. Wow. That's how far they go back. Amazing. And so I had known him all my life. Yeah. And I knew Arthur, you know, wrote poetry, but I had no idea he could sing. Yes. And was because he couldn't play an instrument. He learned accordion and then he switched over to organ because there was a guy that was going door to door in our neighborhood selling music lessons. And so Arthur uh, took accordion lessons, and my father was put on the hook for a $300 guitar, which back then was an absolute fortune. Yes. And so I started playing, and then I took lessons from uh, Adolf Jacobs, who was in the coasters. He was a friend, and so my uncle um, managed a place called the California Club, and all of these acts. It was on the Chitlin circuit. So that's how we knew Little Richard and Adolph and many other musicians, even though my parents were not musicians per se. My father was, uh, he just loved music. And uh, so anyway, with Billy Preston uh, and Henry, we did frat parties every week. And who, Billy obviously played keyboards, you played guitar. Correct. Did and Billy sing? Oh, yeah, Billy sang, because at one point, we see, we were different groups. We were uh, Billy Preston and the Soul Brothers, and that was when we we played Cinnamon Cinder and all of these um, frat parties and stuff up and down the coast. Well, Billy had a, a gospel thing happening, and it started to take off, so he was going to split and leave the group, and Arthur had asked if he could join. Now, not being a musician, the guy said, no, man, why are we going to have him? He doesn't play anything. So we put him on bongo drums. Arthur played bongos and conga drums. And uh, when Billy left, Arthur kind of moved over to, to trying to play organ. And his parents bought him a little Wurlitzer or something, and uh, he played that. So Arthur now is part of the group, and then Henry left because he wanted to, to do blues. He was really into blues as well. So now it was Arthur and me and John Fleckenstein, who later was with the Standells. He was a friend of ours, too. And so uh, he joined that group. What did he play in the Standells? He played the bass. Great. Uh -huh. And then Don Conca was our drummer. And um, that was the, we named ourselves the Grassroots, and we were the first Grassroots. We were also the American Four, and I think we called ourselves, after we heard the birds, we were the Weirds with the YWY. So when you first started, tell me a little bit about the music scene then. Like, what, what would you hear on the radio in that time when you were just forming? Well, we were a cover band, as, as everyone was, because um, this was... 
63, 64. I'm in high school. I'm just getting out of high school then. What would be some of the songs you'd cover? Oh, gosh. Twist and Shout or Shout we would do. Um, Isley Brothers Shout? Yeah, Isley Brothers things. And so whatever was on the radio that time, whatever rocking songs were, we would do those. And um, Little Richard was going on tour and uh, this guy, Jimmy James, who was later Jimi Hendrix, was going with him as his basically his gopher. He was Richard's driver and his chauffeur and all of that. So Billy and I were part of that initial tour. And we went to uh, England, to Liverpool, and we met these guys, the Quarrymen. And later we find out that these guys are the Beatles, but you know we didn't know that at the time. Yes, we just you know uh, met these guys, and I had to come back because a, a grandmother had died, and so I had to leave. So I didn't tour that much with them. I just met these guys and went back to Los Angeles. The Quarrymen opened for Little Richard, didn't they? Is that, is that yes? I feel yes. like I've seen that poster. Yes, they opened for for Little Richard, and basically they followed him around like little of puppies. Course. They loved him, and of you know, and so Richard was being Richard, and so he would, you know, and Jimmy, as I said, was was the gopher. I had met Jimmy earlier. At so the Jimmy California wasn't club. playing in the band. Oh yeah, he was in the band playing, playing playing as well. Yeah, he played as well. But when I first met him, he. I think he was with the Isley Brothers and auditioning for a job with um, the OJs. Mm -hmm. And we were kind of, Billy and I and a couple of other people, Michael Bolivar is a huge jazz guy now. We had a, we were part of the backing band. And so we would, uh, the house band, so to speak, and we would play behind ZZ Hill or B.B. King or whoever, Sam Cooke. They were performing at there and we were part of that. So that's how I first met Jimmy James. Yeah. So, as I said, when I had to leave and come back to Los Angeles, so a couple of months later, Billy and I were playing at a place called The Nightlife. And of all things, there was a telegram sent there because they knew we were playing there, so it was a telegram. And um, uh, Brian Epstein said, I didn't know Brian, but Billy did. He said to be on the lookout, there was a package coming for us. And uh, so I wonder, what the hell is this? So a few days later, sure enough, the package comes and Billy opens up and there are these passes, backstage passes to the Hollywood Bowl. And we hadn't figured it out yet that those guys that we met in England that followed Richard around were the Beatles. And then he says, There'd be no way to know. Yeah. There'd be no way to know, of course. So we get to the Hollywood Bowl and we see these are those dudes. And all of these chicks and screaming, it was just amazing. And that's when we decided, hey, we're going to do this, you know. And so uh, Arthur and I, he came along too, and um, we decided to go in that direction. So basically, love started that night we were at the Hollywood Bowl. Incredible. Yeah. And, th- and that's when you decided to write your own songs? Yes. Because up till then, it was only covers. Yeah, basically only cover. And so we would um, write our own songs. Fleckenstein had started writing songs, and so he would add to it. And um, so we were probably maybe 10% of our songs were original, and the rest of them were covers. And we carried on like that. And then um, we get a job at a place called the Brave New World. Now, the Brave New World was initially a gay bar. And the owner of it wanted to switch over because uh, he, I think uh, they had found a new hangout. And so his place wasn't the in place anymore. And so he brought us down to play. 
And uh, we used to go over to a place called Ben Frank's in Hollywood, where everybody hung out. So we the one went, on Sunset? Or the yeah, one? it's on, on Sunset. Yeah. And so we went to Ben Frank's, and we saw David Crosby and the birds, and these guys are holding court at Ben Frank's, sitting, and all, everybody's going back and forth from their table. And we met. It's like 65? Yeah, this would have been 65 or 66. I think 66. And uh, we met Brian. And um, he was fascinated with us because it doesn't appear that way now. But at that point, Hollywood was fairly segregated because you didn't see black people that often in Hollywood. So Brian sees us and we're kind of wearing the, you know, the hippie outfits and our hair had grown long and stuff. And so he just came over and sat at our table and wanted to chat with us because we looked interesting to him. You know, he was a gadfly kind of guy. That was his thing. He just knew, knew everybody. Was he in bands as well? Previous? He was the roadie for the birds. I didn't know that either. Oh, yes. Yes. So he introduced us to David Crosby, mm-hmm. and we invited them to come down to the Brave New World to hear us. Yes. And David didn't come, but Brian did. And Brian asked if he could sit in with us. And so, of course, we let him sit in. Mm-hmm. Now, at that time, which maybe you didn't know, Bobby Boussole, who later of the Manson thing, was part of that group. He wasn't getting paid. He would just come in and sit in with us. Mm-hmm. And... um when Brian came, we asked Brian to join the group and told Bobby he wasn't needed any longer because Brian just fit right in. You know, he had so a, Bobby was in the group prior, prior to Brian, and then Brian replaced right. Bobby Bosley. Brian replaced him, and uh, so they had hard feelings, but I, I didn't see why because he just was a yeah, it was right, it was right, the right fit. Yeah, and so when Brian came, he brought with him the people that came to see the birds. This was Vito and Carl Franzoni and the guys that ended up following the mothers followed us first. And so we go from having a a reasonably good crowd to having an overflowing crowd just within a couple of days of Brian joining the group because he brought all those people with him. And that's when we decided that that was the direction that we were going to go. You know, we were going to be a kind of a folk rock birdsy kind of group. And so we started playing that type of, of music and Brian, he basically influenced the, the transition for us. And he was a major influence on how we behaved and all of that. Because, you know, we looked up to him and thought it was cool. And we came from a different area. Yeah. So we started um, dressing more and more like they did, you know, in that area. And um, as I said, the fire marshal was there just about every night because there were too many people in the club. And uh, so we basically uh, took off from that point. From there, it just uh, it just continued to go. So at know. this point, the birds were still still making music and oh, still yes. popular. Yes, what, yes. So just so we have the landscape, what else was going on? Like, if you were to go out, one who would you be excited in at that era of the band? Who would you have been excited to go out and see who was playing around town? Um, Iron Butterfly, we would see them. And during that period, this is when everything kind of melded. We'd see the Buffalo Springfield. They were We all lived up in the canyon, basically. And the Turtles and Turtles. Laurel Canyon. Yeah, and Laurel Canyon, yeah. The Turtles were basically one of the first... Um, groups that that we would see and go out and pat and, and Lolly were the turtles a whole band or really just the two singers no they were a full band they were a full band yeah and the, the people that later became red bone pat and lolly vega they were friends and we'd see them and um the whiskey 
basically was um, kind of a square club. We'd call it street. That's what the, the term was. Yes. And Johnny Rivers was performing there. I see. And the lady that booked the place, Ronnie Heron, was a friend. And she used to come and hear us at, um, we moved from Brave New World to Beat Olitos. And she, Where was that? Beatolitos was in uh, Cosmos Alley, which was near Wilcox between Hollywood and Sunset. Mm-hmm. It was in that area. Mm-hmm. And so we had uh, been offered an opportunity to play there. And so we left the Brave New World and, and um, because we would have been the first group, we were the first group to play there. So they allowed us to basically set up the sound system, you know, that, that kind of was the way we wanted to sound. And... Uh, Anyway, so Ronnie, having met her at Bidolitos, she was the booker at the Whiskey. And the Whiskey had a horrible reputation for not paying musicians then. So she asked us to come and play, and we said, hell no, we're not going to pay, because those guys are, we all thought that they were mafia. That's what everybody thought. Those guys are mafia. It might have been. I think they were. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But... um, and in those days, how long would you play for? Like, what would what would a night's entertainment we be? We would play basically four or five, um, 45 minute sets per night. So we'd start. And would at, they be the same songs over and over oh, again? Oh, no, 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 no. We played different songs. So we had a, a repertoire. We, so we you, you could play for three or four hours, oh, yeah. all yeah. different songs. Yeah. And yeah. again, at this time, it's mostly covers. Yeah, just 90, 90% covers. And then we started playing um, some, adding a few of our own stuff in. Would people dance? Oh, yeah, they try. They were yeah, you know, yeah. packed in there. But yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's what it was, a dance. Yes. And um, as I mentioned earlier, I was kind of blues, jazz oriented. Mm-hmm. So um, right across from us was Shelley's manhole. It was the, the back of Shelley's manhole was the front of Beatolitos. And so these musicians, they see all of these people and they would come by. So I met Paul Horn and, and uh, Miles Davis and Coltrane and stuff. And so on our breaks, we would go and listen to them and Charles Lloyd. Uh, I'd known Charles Lloyd also. He was one of the band directors in high school. So anyway, we noticed that these guys would take these long extended solos. And so we did a song we titled uh, John Lee Hooker that later became Revelation. And we would play this one song sometimes for a whole hour. That's just the whole set. And, you know, trying to emulate the jazz musicians. Mm -hmm. Now, so we would have been probably one of the first jam bands. And people started coming just to hear us play one song the whole set. And um, as I said, the jazz guys would come in and every now and then... Charles would sit in with us, or Gabor Zabo would, you know, sit in on one of the songs. So we started getting a reputation among musicians as well as as the the hippie crowd. Was it unusual also that it was an integrated band? Yes, it was, because at that point, I think we were. I believe the Rising Suns may have been mixed race. I think uh, Taj Mahal was part of that, and then there was Ry Cooter, and then but but uh, I think that was probably the only other mixed race group and so that again was a a calling card and uh being that we were mixed race and we're dealing with people that you know consider themselves enlightened and you know and it's it's hard to describe this but they wanted to come you know they couldn't go over to the the other side of town without necessarily getting into trouble or having some problems so meeting black musicians and was was something that 
was a, a huge calling card for us is having people meet us. And the fact that we basically spoke the same language. We were relatively articulate and they could speak with us. As, you know, we weren't talking street slang that nobody could understand. Yeah, and, so, so, and mu- really the common language was the music. Right. Like that was the real... That's correct. And being that we were safe, dangerous, uh, you know, all of these young girls from the valley would come to see us. And, you know, and, and so that's how we got this huge crowd at one point, they would block off the street. Cosmos Alleys was basically a private street, and they'd block it off at both ends, and then they would charge admission for people to come in, even though they could never get in to so see it was the like group. A, almost like a block party. Yeah, basically, that's what it was. you couldn't see the band. <laughs> yes, yeah, you didn't see the band, but they put these huge Voice of the Theater speakers out there. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, so... Pretty, it sounds like, a, sounds like a great event. Yeah, like, this it was cool. like it was fun to come to. Yeah. This was really fun, and as I said, we were starting to get a reputation amongst musicians because all the jazz guys came to see us and and wanted to do something with us. So we had basically taken off, and then we moved to the whiskey. You know, we still stayed at the Beatles, but we played at uh, the whiskey, and then later the trip, and um, we played there. The first night, I think we played there with um, uh, the Velvet Underground. And I think we played once with the Birds, I believe. I'm not sure if, mm-hmm. if they played there with us. And we played many gigs with the Doors, of course. So that's basically when that whole music scene in Hollywood started. Because then, as I mentioned before, the Iron Butterfly and uh, uh, the Electric Flag. So there were many, many groups. And we all lived, basically, and Frank Zappa lived on the same street. And that, that's something that probably will never happen in life again. And all of these houses in Laurel Canyon, you could rent a house there for $60 a month. Would you say that there was a sense of camaraderie with the artists? Yes. Less about competition and more about friendship. Right. And there was kind of a friendly rivalry in that everybody wanted to to do as best that they could, especially when we started making records. Everybody wanted to kind of do a little bit better than the other guys. Mm -hmm. So. Um, and then I'll mention how we got the doors. Yes. Okay. Um, after Love had become quite uh, popular in Hollywood, of course, Jim Morrison became our friend and he would come every night. Is and this hang still out. pre-recording? No, this is after we we've, we've after done the, the first, first album? Love album. Okay. And by then we'd really taken off now. Yes. And uh, so we're playing much, much larger venues around uh, Hollywood. And um, Jim, as I said, became our friend. He was mostly my friend and Brian Arthur didn't particularly care for him but anyway he was a an interesting person he he was also a poet and that was his big desire in life is to have his group become as big as love was and um he had mentioned to me several times that he wanted us to introduce him to our record companies to get him hooked up and of course we didn't want to vouch for jim because jim was a handful jim was he was full of drink all the time. Yes. He, he was, um, that was his thing, his drinking. Yes. So we got an offer from MCA, which was a rather large record company back then. 
And since we weren't happy with Electra because of the way that first album turned out, and they weren't able to promote us because they just didn't have the money at the and time. And they were also mainly a folk label. Right. We might not have even known how right. to promote this That's kind of music. That's the thing. They, they had not, no experience mm-hmm. with this kind of music. They didn't have the experience. So when MCA came up and, and they offered us like $50,000 uh, signing bonus, which would be about five hundred grand now. And so that was a humongous sum of money back then. Mm-hmm. And so we had spoken to Jack Holzman about leaving. We didn't tell him it was MCA. We just told him we weren't happy and wanted to leave. And of course, he was having none of that. So we came up with a brilliant idea. We said, if we hook him up with the doors and he has a rock group and, and he has, he's still in the game, he'll let us go. And MCA offered to buy us out of the contract and no such luck. So he came down the first night and heard the doors and he hated them and we managed to talk him into coming back to see him a second time and he hated them even more and he was kind of getting pissed off at us for wasting his time so a month or two goes by and jack is here for something else and we speak with him and we said please come back and see these guys one more time we're still working him trying to get him to cut us loose and this time he brought paul rothschild with him and paul had just gotten out of uh, prison. Paul had gone to prison for selling grass, and so we thought that was so cool that you know, so yeah, street creds. Yeah, he had street creds. So um, he came down again, and he with uh, with Paul. And this night, uh, the Iron Butterfly was on the bill with uh, the Doors at the Whiskey, and uh, he came back that that third time and. Jim was on his best behavior. He wasn't drunk, and he did the songs, you know, properly. And uh, Jim was a very charismatic, uh, good-looking guy, and he could see the attention that the young ladies were paying to him. And um, he saw what we saw, and so he decided to speak with Ronnie. Our she had become our manager by then, and she hooked him up with the doors and made the introductions. And uh, they signed within a day or so of meeting them. And we thought, cool, now he's going to cut us loose and let us go, which uh, no, no such thing, you know. Basically, what we did was we shot ourselves in the foot because the money that would have been spent promoting us now was spent promoting the doors. And um, we were so proud that we had this huge billboard outside of uh, Chateau Mermont. And uh, within a few days, they had the doors right across from us. So now we've got a rivalry amongst friends, and they were doing really, really well. They were selling records, and uh, so more of the record company's attention was focused on them now. Of course it would be. These guys are, you know, they've got a number one song with Light My Fire, and they are much more malleable than we were, you know, as far as as, um, listening to the advice of of Jack Holtzman, because... Wasn't there also an issue with touring? I I don't know the details, but I've always heard that Arthur didn't want to leave Los Angeles. Well, see, that that was kind of a misnomer. We, back then, being a mixed-race group, there were most more places in this country that we couldn't play than Understood. we could. Understood. We could not play the South at all. Mm-hmm. Other than, we did play at Texas once. <laughs> Other than that, we couldn't play the South and much of the Midwest and Middle America. We were off limits there as well. Fascinating. So even though, you know, music was our livelihood, that's how we survived. So yes. of course we wanted to tour and play, but we played where we could. And 
Los Angeles, we were getting bookings and bookings, and and、um, it turned out because the record company didn't back us the way and promote us by sponsoring tours the way they did for the Doors,、uh, it was rather than like we could play in New York and Chicago and Detroit and places like that, which we did later. But initially, we found it. Better to play here because we made more money staying here and not having to pay the travel expenses. Of course, and you were in great demand, right? And we were in demand here. So、uh, after Forever Changes was finished,、uh, they did sponsor a tour.、Uh, Electra did, and as I said, we went to Detroit, Chicago, and Cleveland, and New York, and just about anywhere on the on the East Coast we we could play. We played Boston and, and so many different places. And how were those experiences? Those were great because it was basically the same. It was like going from here to San Francisco. It was the same same type of people. They、yeah. looked the same, dressed the same, talked the same. Yeah. So it was basically the same type of people.、Mm-hmm. This is a question I don't know the answer. Did Jimi Hendrix look like Jimi Hendrix before Arthur? No, he looked like he would wear these、uh, cardigan jackets and real skinny ties. Yes, and the processed hair, the pompadour.、Yes. That's how Jimi looked. That's、yes. the Jimi James that I knew.、Yes. He looked nothing like that. So he basically co-opted some of Arthur's style. Yes, you know, and because he was just so impressed out because love, it, it, it's hard to. Over or, or exaggerate how huge that group was、of、just in, in Los Angeles and、yes. Hollywood. So everybody was looking up to us at that point, and、um, we didn't even know when we first heard of Jimi Hendrix. We didn't know that he was Jimi James, <laughs> and we were coming <laughs> down from, pre-internet. Yeah, Everything yeah, was information、yeah. was hard to get. That's correct. We、yeah. came from San Francisco, and a friend of ours, names Johnny, also said, "Man, there's this dude, Jimi Hendrix. He's playing at the Whiskey. You guys should go and see him." So we came from San Francisco, and we went to the Whiskey, expecting to see somebody that we. And then we see, and Arthur says, "Man, that's that dude from the, <laughs> the California Club," and he was entirely different. He's dressed in full regalia, and、um, now he's doing all of the old Chitlin Circuit. Tricks, you know, playing behind your back. You know, people think that uh, that uh, Jimmy invented that, but that was just an old staple. Johnny Guitar Watson and and、uh, people like Classy Baloo and those guys did that all the time. And Albert Collins, they always played behind their back or head, or you know, so. That was new to the people in Hollywood, but it was old hat as far as we were concerned. Yes,、but、he was playing stuff, and he, he just, you know. He goes from being a journeyman guitar player, just a so-so guy playing guitar, to being this monster. And and I always say, man, did you? You must have taken a trip to the crossroads, man. Something is, you know. So we would laugh about that often. But and I still wonder how, in the space of a little over a year, he goes from being just a so-so guitar player to being God, basically. Wait, you know? What do you think? It, and you think? I mean, as a guitar player, was your perception? Wow, he went from so-so to unbelievable. Yes, not yes. just the perception, but in reality, in re- what you it, saw as a musician. Yeah, in reality, the the way he played music, the stuff that he did, you know, was different than anybody else at that time. No, I'm not talking about the flashiness, but talking about the way he played was different, and he was using effects, you know, because they had given me one of those things before they did. 
uh, Jimmy, uh, we were signed with Vox and Thomas Organ. Mm-hmm. And so Kenny and I went down and they gave me this thing. It was called a Wawa tape and this pedal. I still have the pedal, as a matter of fact. And uh, uh, it was supposed to emulate the sound of a trombone, you know, wah, 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 with a uh, mute on it. I never knew that's what yeah. it was. Interesting. And uh, I thought, well, hell, if I wanted to do that, I would play the trombone. I don't, you know, I'm trying not trying to emulate a trumpet or trombone. I'm a guitar player. So I put the damn thing in the closet and never, never uh, bothered with it. And Jimmy gets the same thing. And, uh, you know, he turns it into, you know... I never thought of that before, the idea that uh, that part of Jimmy's breakthrough involved using new technology. Yes, that's exactly... Fascinating. It's a fascinating point. Without that, there would have been no Jimi Hendrix. Jimmy was the effects. That's what made him sound different. That's what made everybody look, because he didn't sound like every other guitar player. He sounded different. And it was because of those effects, of course. He embraced the technology. Yes, the technology. He knew how to use it, and he made it his own. And he was so identified with that that that's who he was. But he also... Uh, you know, had the foresight and and the musicianship to use it properly because I saw the same damn thing and I'm you know yeah. I didn't do it so yeah. he did it so I have to give him his props for what he did. So we saw him and and uh, Arthur and him started hanging together because you know they were closer than because I think Jimmy well there was a song called My Diary that Arthur had written that Rosalie. Brooks recorded, and I think that was one of Jimmy's first recording gigs is playing on that. Uh, so they were, they were closer than the two of us were, but yeah. you know we were friends. Did Jimmy we, look up to Arthur? Yes, he did. Mm, yes, he sense. did. Yeah, and at that time he was as the Doors. The Doors had the number one record in the country, but they were deferential to us in that that they played second billing, yeah. you know, and they uh, have a number one record. Normally, when you got a number one record, you're top billing, but you would see some of the old posters. It would be love and huge letters, and then the Doors. And their number one hit, Light My Fire, underneath it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so Jimmy had basically the same kind of deferential attitude toward the group because we were able to, like, you know, we could play the Hollywood Bowl or the Palladium or any place and outdraw just about anybody and people that had, you know, records out. So couldn't, Yeah, they couldn't do it. Even, yeah. even if they had hits, they couldn't yeah, do they it. Couldn't you, do had, it. you had really built up a grassroots following mm-hmm. from the beginning. Yes, we it had. It wasn't based on a song. It wasn't based on a song. It was based on the persona of the group, the fact that, you know, the the lifestyle and the fact that um, we lived in the castle. So we, you know, and we drove around Jags and sports cars and stuff <laughs> around. So, you know, they it just kind of set us apart from uh, the other musicians. And so they were all trying to, to emulate that. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming uh, and doing this. My pleasure. Thanks to Johnny Eccles for taking us back in time to talk about the creation of Forever Changes. You can hear that full album plus some of our other favorite love songs on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez, with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. 
Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.